2: Please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning and
3: welcome to Cyber Law Business Report, broadcasting live here from the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica. And um, another beautiful day here. Uh, we have a great show for you today. We have uh, another great author, and we're also tapping the University of Maryland once again. And um, we have the author, um, um Steinzer. Um, who is the author of Why Not Jail? And uh, raises the questions of when and should corporations actually be jailed, or at least their officers. Um, and then in the second half, we'll be talking about some of the latest developments in Internet law, um, including the um, Steiner-Perkins trial and uh, a recent decision of applying the Americans with Disability Act to websites. So um, without further ado, do, uh, do we have Professor Steinser?
4: Yes, you do, and i'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
3: Thank you for coming and um, you know, professor has has had quite a distinguished career, um, including um, going back she was on the Energy and Commerce Committee um, as a staff member working on one of the landmark pieces of legislation from the seventies superfund
4: that's right
3: and, and was, that- uh,
4: those were my salad days. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and um and and in terms of you know, you you teach em- environmental law among other things at the University of Maryland School of Law, right?
4: Yes, yeah. yes.
3: And um and so in in your in, as a professor there, you obviously, um it seems that you you've been somewhat discouraged in terms of the lack of enforcement or the failure to address certain, I guess, you know, environmental catastrophes.
4: Yes, I actually have, in recent years, been trying to take a look across all the agencies that are assigned the vital task of protecting public health, safeguarding worker and consumer safety, and also, of course, protecting the environment. And what I've found at agencies that include not just EPA, but also the Food and Drug Administration, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and most re- recently the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is that, uh, the, there is a tremendous amount of what I would call regulatory dysfunction Not because uh, the agency staffs themselves, who are generally sincere and trying to do the best they can, but because their funding is very low and they've been constantly harassed by opponents of regulation. So what is happening is that a lot of consumers and workers and members of the public are being endangered by uh, exploding oil refineries, tainted drugs, uh, unsafe cars. This is the latest uh, episode. Uh, Last year we had 64 million cars recalled for safety defects. That's close to half of all the cars that are registered and on the road. So we're having very serious problems and the protection of people is falling below what Americans expect.
3: And I guess part of the problem is that people are making, you know, corporations, boards are making decisions knowing full well that these, these effects, these consequences will occur.
4: Well, you know, I think, it, I would say that they are taking unconscionable risk. I wouldn't go so far as to say they say, well, it's okay because to uh, do all these things. I know that my oil rig will blow up if I do it or my refinery will have an explosion or my drugs will be tainted. Because if they were able to recognize that, then they would also know how much, how costly these mistakes are. Um, But what I think they're doing is uh, trying to cut costs in a way that is reckless, trying to get right close to the margin and not making uh, safety a priority in any sense of the word. And the companies that have done that have paid a huge price, but it's this kind of arrogant uh, risk-taking that I'm talking about.
3: And and so um, let's let's talk about some of the risks that you highlight in your book. Um, Why not jail, industrial catastrophe, corporate malfeasance, and government in action? Um, and one of the, I guess the, the most famous and obviously um, in terms of some of the broadest impact would be the um, Deepwater Horizon explosion for um, BP and the, uh, the the leak in the Gulf.
4: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Actually, it was BP that uh, uh, inspired me to write this book because I became interested in the Deepwater Horizon. That particular summer, I was lucky enough to be teaching in Aberdeen, Scotland. And Aberdeen, people may or may not know, is the Houston of the North Sea. So they have for a long time uh, had tremendous experience with oil deep water drilling safety. And they had a terrible tragedy in the 70s and have developed a very rigorous system for ensuring that their uh, drilling platforms and rigs are safe. And as I got to talk to some of my colleagues, it became very clear that uh, BP and our entire Gulf operation, because we have thousands of drilling sites in the Gulf of Mexico, were not being run in a rigorous way. And then I began to look into BP's own history in this country and found that for 10 years it had been sort of galloping across the tundra blind to risk, with fatalities occurring among its workers and damage to the public and the environment that was really irreversible. And it had been punished, including three settlements of criminal cases against the corporation, and this had not made a dent. So I started to think about why it was important to tell this story, and to explain how critical it is to have individual executives actually be in the crosshair of some of these prosecutions because they're the people that make these decisions. And there were common patterns among all these situations.
3: And um, it it kind of brings to mind a a report I saw of an exchange between Senator Elizabeth Warren and Jamie Dimon that, Quickly yeah. um, descended into more or less a, I don't know if it's shouting match, but basically Diamond saying, um, you know, so what are you going to, what are you going to do? Find us, go ahead, we can afford it. And yes, when a, when a company
4: so great, yeah, so yeah. That's such a good point.
3: And when a company gets that big, that that basically that's their response. Um, how how does one create a deterrent?
4: Well, I don't think that um, um, we can create an effective deterrent and get these things to stop without holding individual people personally liable. We talk a lot about personal responsibility and accountability in this country. We say it's something we want our children to learn as a parent, Um, I wanted my kids to understand that they were accountable for their choices and their decisions and the impact of what they did had on other people. And in the white-collar area, we have drifted far away from that. And it's not just in health and safety, although that was my focus. It's also the banks. I think people are outraged that there haven't been more prosecutions Because we have well-documented stories of financiers taking unbelievable risks with our economy. And when we had the crash in 2008, it really hurt people. Not Jamie Dimon, but his customers. Right.
3: Now, um, and so another example, actually, um, since your book, I believe it was after your book came out... um, Involved is the mine disaster um, in the Upper Big Branch. Um, it killed twenty nine miners, and the owner of that mine, um, a, a guy named um, Donald Blankenship. Um, he had been the former chief executive officer of the company and been somewhat indifferent um, to the the risks that he was created. He recently has been indicted. Um, can you tell us he a little has, bit? Of, yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about that incident, and why do you think maybe he was a good choice for indictment?
4: Uh, He's a terrific choice for indictment, and here's why. That was the worst mine disaster in 40 years, and the reason that it happened was because the executives, starting with Blankenship and working down to middle management, put enormous pressure on the workers to work faster to mine coal more quickly and to ignore safety requirements so when the explosion that killed the miners happened and it was an enormous it was an enormous explosion that uh, just shattered the mine. It traveled two miles in all directions. The reason it happened was because they'd allowed methane to build up. And we have modern equipment to monitor methane. It's, they were neglecting the monitors. And because the place was covered in coal dust, which is a very uh, ignitable fuel. It burns very quickly. And as for the coal dust... They were completely flouting a basic safety requirement, which is that you dust the coal dust with rock, which is inert, mm-hmm. and you therefore suppress the possibility of the coal dust catching on fire and exploding. And both of these uh, mistakes had been cited. They've been cited for it hundreds of times and they were playing this game, this cat-and-mouse game with the regulatory agency by appealing all those citations and slowing everything down, the mine had been evacuated for safety reasons three times in the two weeks before it exploded, and still uh, CEO uh, Blankenship was relentless. Dig coal, that's your first job. Coal pays the bills. If you start whining to me about safety, you're risking losing your job. And, and that it, last one is in the indictment.
3: And and that industry actually, you know, it goes to what you were talking about earlier is somewhat of the failure of the regulatory agencies, because some of the I've seen some of the fines that have been issued, even after incidents involving death in the mines, and it's it's you know it's under five hundred dollars.
4: They're pitiful, but that is also a uh, congressional problem because the agency is not sufficiently aggressive, I agree, but the fines are also very limited in the statute and the law. Oh, I see. So, And the, the, some of the criminal charges are misdemeanor charges. What the U.S. attorney has done in the Blankenship cases, use other statutes—statutes uh, statutes that make it a felony to lie to the government—that kind of thing. And it's also packaged together misdemeanor charges. But it's been it, it, the law did not help arrest this problem before people had to die, and the laws need to be upgraded.
3: Now, you know, going back to the financial crisis, we talked about that earlier, and. Um, I actually, um, I knew, I knew L- Lanny Brewer, who was the, um, I guess, assistant uh, attorney general for the the, the, the um, criminal division, the Justice Department, you know, during most of the Obama administration. And you know, there's a lot of criticism directed at him and attorney general Holder for not um, having any criminal action against anyone associated with the financial crisis. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that?
4: Well, I agree. I think that um Eric Holder, who by the way was a classmate of mine in law school, <laughs> this is one of the most disappointing aspects of his uh period in office. He did he's done some commendable things, but his position and his policies on white-collar crime are extraordinarily disappointing. And it's ironic because I agree with him that we uh, imprison too many young people of color for minor drug offenses. And that's something that he has talked about a lot, that the justice system is punitive toward the poor. Um, But the flip side of that is that it is lenient toward the rich, excessively lenient, and lets white-collar criminals uh, get away with uh, crimes that have enormous impact on people. And his position, and his position with Lanny Brewer, was to uh, let these people pay their fines and walk without even admitting that they were criminal. That's I'm talking about when he brought cases against corporations. Right. Very few cases against individuals that have anything to do with the Wall Street crash, and most of those were Britain, were uh, brought by the Southern District U.S. Attorney, who's somewhat independent from the Justice Department.
3: And um, you know, you often heard. I, mean, I recall a 60 Minutes um, segment with Lanny Brewer, and he he said. You know, I would if I could. That like he just didn't have seems to suggest that he didn't have the power, or the law. You know, the law and the facts just weren't aligned in a way that he could bring criminal charges. Do you think that you think that's a, um, a actually a, a genuine assessment?
4: No, I think that's nonsense. And I think that he. Uh, I think that there were plenty of legal hooks that could have been brought, and that uh, legal hooks that could have formed the basis of a case, and I think he chose not to pursue those in part because he uh, was confused about Arthur Anderson, sort of deliberately confused. You may remember Arthur Anderson right. was the accountant for Enron. And as soon as it emerged that Arthur Anderson was Enron's accountant, its clients deserted it in droves, because who wants to be associated with a firm that was keeping the books for one of the greatest pyramid schemes in American history? And they uh, ended up... Losing all their clients, and at some point along the way, they were also indicted by the Justice Department because what they did in the immediately as as when Enron confessed to them that it didn't have any money left, they started shredding documents exactly. and they shredded tons of documents within a period of three weeks. And that's what they were indicted for. So uh, they went out of business because no one wanted to be associated with them, given what had happened with Enron. And they were indicted for doing something that is very blatantly illegal. And somehow the Justice Department has gotten itself convinced that if it indicts anybody, it may put the corporation out of business. Right. And so it can't can't afford to do that because we can't afford to lose jobs. And this is just it's based on an urban legend.
3: Uh, a missus and misunderstanding of the timeline. It sounds like, but you know, just for those yes. those who may not be familiar with Arthur Anderson, you know, there was a time when you know they used to be called the Big Eight accounting firms, and now I yes. think we're down to the three or four. But the Big One was Arthur Anderson.
4: That's right, and the reason that they went wrong because the company actually had a history of very high integrity. Was that they decided that they were going to sell consulting services to the same companies that they were auditing? Right. So then they got themselves in this very fuzzy uh, netherworld where they were trying to keep the client happy and overlooking all sorts of accounting irregularities because they wanted to sell consulting services. And that's they made their bed and they they were destroyed by it.
3: Right. And I mean, a company of that stature to fall so quickly, it it really was an astounding event. And um, but yeah, so I guess the fear that that could happen to a city corp or something, I I can understand the fear, but it's just not, it isn't what happened with our dreams.
4: Well, these days we don't let companies fail, but you know, I think it's not fair. Uh, If you have that attitude, then why don't you ask when you arrest a drug dealer who he's supporting in his neighborhood? Does he have an extended family? Are we going to go and say, well, we can't arrest drug dealers because they might be supporting their aunt and their grandmother? I mean, it's the most notorious example is HSBC Bank, which was not. Um, had a deferred agreement with the government, was never made to confess its crimes, even though it had laundered money for the Mexican drug cartels and was the banker for terrorist re- regimes in Sudan and Libya. And this was, uh, you know, really a, a scandal when the Justice Department announced that. And now it turns out HSBC is back in the front and center HGN, because they've yeah. yeah. So what,
3: what exactly is the new allegation against HSBC? I think
4: that they didn't uh, do what they were supposed to do. Usually these agreements require them to comply with laws and audit uh, their behavior and that they were careless about the way they carried this out. Um, But I would suggest to you that HSBC was at the time the fourth largest bank in the world. And the idea that if the Justice Department indicted it, it would go out of business is just laughable. I mean, again, that's not why Arthur Anderson went out of business. Arthur Anderson went out of business because it was associated with Enron, not because the Justice Department indicted it.
3: Exactly. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more on um, should corporations go to jail after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on Webmaster Radio FM.
2: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
1: chill. At the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com.
2: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back
3: with Professor Raina Steinsort from the University of Maryland Carey School of Law in Baltimore. And she is the author of Why Not Jail? Um, and we were just talking about some of the scandals that could possibly um, merit um, some criminal prosecution. Now, w- Professor what would what is the threshold, you think? For when uh, a prosecutor or even a policymaker should consider um, jail for corporate actions.
4: Well, um, let me just uh, distinguish in the in the listeners' minds, because uh, I sometimes talk about these interchangeably. And I I was hoping people keep them straight. That you can prosecute an individual. And you can also prosecute a corporation. Corporations are paper entities, and they don't go to jail um, because you can't send a a paper entity to jail. But um, they can pay fines, and they can enter into agreements with the government that they will take extraordinary measures to make sure they clean up their act um individuals can be jailed of course right and what we you and i were just talking about was uh what happens to Citibank or HSBC or Arthur Anderson when they por- when they're prosecuted in their corporate capacity so to she shift to the individual executive question i think it's the theory of the cases is that they acted In such a reckless way that that a reasonable person, it's not a matter of the defendant has to confess because we'd never get anywhere, right? Right. The behavior is so obvious and so reckless that the uh, individual defendant had the mindset and committed the bad act to deserve to go to jail. And to use just one other very current example, uh, you may remember that pharmacy up in Massachusetts that was mixing steroid injections for people who had lower back pain. And it ran such a sloppy clean room, supposed to be sterile and it wasn't, that the medicine was all contaminated with fungal meningitis. And it ended up that uh, 64 people died across the country, 750 contracted meningitis and are still ill. They're, they're, in, a, they're in a terrible place. Um, they're still receiving intensive treatment. And the Justice Department, to its great credit, Indicted them for RICO violations, racketeering violations, and also for second-degree murder because the federal law allows you to sweep in state murder charges when you make issue a racketeering charge. So those people are going to go on trial. Um, there were 14 of them indicted. Two were indicted for second-degree murder, the chief pharmacist and the owner so the the, the
3: combination and you know the common thread in in your examples is um there's twofold one obviously is um great harm um yes. to society, often yes. involving physical you know death or injury yeah would financial harm be enough
4: I absolutely believe so because. We all saw stories on the news of people who couldn't feed their children. Right. And people who couldn't buy medicine. So the truth is that the devastating crash uh, was be- caused enormous suffering, even though it was maybe not you, you couldn't see the faces of the people that you were harming but your behavior was so reckless so greedy that you violated basic laws and that's uh, to me is is also great harm i just started with some of these tragedies, these catastrophes, because I wanted to, I have case studies in the book that I examine them very closely. And I wanted to show that corporate executives are not insulated. They are implementing policies like Don Blankenship telling people to dig, coal and ignore safety, or the pharmacists who turn the air conditioning off in their clean room at night so that, you know, in the summertime, everything that, could grow, did grow in the test tubes, exactly. that they behaved, behaved in such a reckless way they deserved to go to jail.
3: So try, I'm trying to shift and see at what point we're not in that zone. So what about, you know, say, a company that has you know, a bank that has all your financial information and doesn't have adequate security and knows it and knows that people are um, being used by identity, by identity thieves? Was that something you think would warrant jail?
4: It would depend on the degree of knowledge. Also, uh, it would depend on what the alternatives are. So legal policymakers always ask, well, what about fining them? Can we impose a great enough penalty so that they're not blasé the way Jamie Dimon was? And often we don't. Often it's just a slap on the wrist. It's a cost of doing business. So, uh, you know, it would depend on what happened to the victim and how uh, reckless the executives were in continuing to move ahead. I'm not saying every time a company makes mistakes, its executives should go to jail. I am saying that when you're on warning and some of the, what we've been talking about here, all of my examples, the compounding firm in it, sis, the guy that shipped peanut butter with salmonella in it, the Texas City refinery explosion, Deepwater Horizon, there was warning war- after warning. Big branch mine, classic example. Warning after warning that there were serious problems and just a refusal a blase refusal to deal with them
3: and so a combination it's you know a, a combination of harm and indifference to harm yeah really it really is the is the driving factor
4: thank you that's so well put
3: <laughs> it, I get it right every now and then now um what has been the reaction to your book?
4: I think there have been um, there's been some interest uh in it and I've been writing op-eds for newspapers around the country. I recently had an experience. I did one for USA Today about these compounding pharmacies and got a call from CBS because they were doing a story. This was just last week on a compounding pharmacist. They've aired this story. It's really I hope they continue to dig about a compounding pharmacy in Texas that was told by the FDA that its drugs were tainted and that it needed to issue a voluntary recall. Amazing. The FDA cannot force someone to recall the drugs in those circumstances. Amazing. This is Congress needs to do something constructive instead of screaming at each other all the time. Um, And the pharmacy said, no, we're not going to do anything.
3: Really, and We're in compliance F- F- with FDA is powerless yeah. at that point.
4: Yeah. Well, I don't think they're powerless. They could seize the inventory that the company has there, and they could send in the FBI. I mean, you know, the FBI went up to Boston and got an indictment, investigated, and got an indictment against. NECC, the pharmacy that killed 64 people. But what is mind boggling to me is we're only a couple of years out from that, and now there is some pharmacy in Texas, Downing Labs, that the uh, FDA has asked to straighten up and fly right, and the company's saying, no, we won't.
3: And which is um, amazing in this interconnected error age where one you know one small error can be broadcast all across the world an in instance and you Absolutely. think this would cause a huge backlash and has it has there been any response you know,
4: this is a remarkable thing and it's a sad thing and it actually proves my point about why criminal enforcement is so important The FDA in desperation sent out a notice to state pharmacy boards in all the states where this Downing labs company was. Uh, doing business because they're headquartered in Texas they get licenses to ship these drugs all over the place and only one state did something about it really Um, the others did not seem to react so we can just pray that um, the the medical system is alert enough to deal with this and is not going to use these drugs but it is a very scary and perilous situation, and the, the saddest thing is that after uh, the pharmacy in Massachusetts, the one that killed 64 people, Congress passed a law, and it, first of all, neglected to give the FDA all the authority it needed to prosecute, to recall these drugs, but it also said, you know, the pharmacies can decide if they want to volunteer to be regulated, so...
3: Oh, and I'm that sure everyone, all of them
4: will. <laughs> you know, it is. We have some f- figures. There are about three thousand of them. Them that make sterile, sterile drugs, and twenty six have registered. Jeez, that, that is just astounding. Um, it's astounding, and I, I, you know, so I hope there is uh, the FBI is at Downing Labs soon.
3: And so Downing Labs is the name of the company. Do you know where they are? Texas. In Texas. All right. So we will post something on our Twitter feed about this and about Downing Labs. At least get some social media on them. Do you know what state was the one, the state um, board of pharmacy, that actually um, responded?
4: Responded. I think it was Michigan. Okay.
3: Well, shout out to the... You know, uh, (laughs) the
4: state pharmacy boards are not equipped to really do this. It really needs to be the FDA. So you know the industry is very comfortable with this sort of falling, but it falls between the cracks of the state pharmacy board and the FDA. We really need the FDA to get in there and deal with this.
3: So um, in the short time we have left, if people want to learn more about you and this book and about the University of Maryland's Carey School of Law, um, where should they go? And do you have anything coming up where people might want to see you?
4: I. Uh, not immediately have something coming up. Um, the best place probably is to go on the website of uh, the Center for Progressive Reform, which is a think tank that I work on with some of my colleagues. And the website for that is www.progressivereform, all one word, .org.
3: Okay. And that, is that based in Washington?
4: Yes. We're actually uh, virtual. Uh, you, you, you're, you would like this. Um, we're, we have 60 uh, working academics, professors, mostly law professors across the country who belong um, from Berkeley to Yale. And we have uh, a small staff that actually work out of their homes. And we are very actively maintaining our website, which has all sorts of good information on this and other issues.
3: We'll be sure to check it out. Um, I want to thank you. And also, once thank again, you. thank the University of Maryland for giving us their fine faculty. Um, and um, so but it's been an interesting conversation. It's definitely an important issue. Um, you know, thank how you do so we, much. How do we deal with this? And so thank you for joining us. Um, again, um, the book is Why Not Jail: Industrial Catastrophe, Corporate Malfeasance, and Government Inaction." Action. of um, Stein's Hour. is available. It's from Cambridge um, University Press, and it's available on Amazon and other outlets. So thanks again for joining us.
4: Thank you.
2: We're going to take a short for break. Stay tuned for more of we'll the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
1: Do you want to optimize and grow your business? Then master your skills in conversion rate optimization. Sign up for Conversion Conference Las Vegas 2015, happening on May 12th through the 14th. It's Brasco from Webmaster Radio inviting you to the biggest and only conversion conference in the United States this year. Join your colleagues and the world's leading conversion experts including Tim Ash, Amy Africa, Lance Loveday, Natalie Nahai plus 40 of your favorite optimizers. Learn to create persuasive content, design landing pages that trigger your visitors to action, and convert blog readers into to customers come to conversion conference the conference that pays for itself in no time webmasterradio.fm listeners get a 100 discount on their pass register early and get full access for only 897 dollars when you use discount code wmfm simply register online at conversionconference.com with the code wmfm that's conversionconference.com code wmfm hurry save your seat before they sell out Internet is the online dojo of the highly trained and skilled Internet Marketing Ninjas. Disavowed documents, reconsideration requests, panda and paywin penalties. Let our superior SEO ninjas confront all of your link-related issues. The Internet Marketing Ninjas are equipped to master any marketing exercise, content creation, authorship, link building, PPC, and more. Plus, build more buzz for your brand with our social media marketing strategy. Discover all that the Internet Marketing ninjas can do for you. Visit the online dojo now at internetmarketingninjas.com. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition.
3: To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis.
1: Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Power your mobile business
2: with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble?
1: Visit www.rumble.me.
2: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Um, We have some news updates
3: we want to cover in the little time we have left. Um, But since it is April Fool's, um, here's a a case where truth is stranger than fiction. This is actually a real news story. I am not making it up. But since uh, we we must somehow uh, acknowledge the the date, um, here's a a classic truth is stranger than fiction story. And it comes from um, San Luis Obispo in California, um, also often known as Slow. Um, for its abbreviation, and their um, alleged bank robber who claimed that he was um, acting on the instruction of um, Mother Mary, um, and that he, um, while on the witness stand, reached into his pants pulled, and pulled out some poo and ate, ate it on the stand, um, which that led the court to uh, adjourn, and uh, while the and then cleaned up the witness stand and the witness. Um, but apparently the latest development in that case is that the prosecution has put on a witness that said the man is perfectly sane. Um, and that he apparently, his uh, attempt to uh, use to the, the poo to get an insanity fence may not work. But um, that's all I'm going to say about that. So uh, we're not doing April Fool's to this, this year, but um, we thought we'd give you the fact that you don't need April Fool's. There's enough strange stuff going on out there anyway. In um, the big news that's going on um, in the cyber world, obviously last week's um, verdict in the Kleiner Perkins trial was a major development. Um, the, um, the, all the charges that have been um, filed by um, Ellen Powell against um, Kleiner Perkins that she lost on every count but there's some interesting developments about that case. Um one is that uh, one and one juror actually sat down with one of the bloggers from who covered the complete trial and said that you know basically what drove it was they looked at her um evaluations before um the alleged sexual harassment began and and throughout and that they didn't really see any marked change in how she was being evaluated and so that Ultimately, that, that they believe that the decision on what was done with um, Ms. Powell um, was consistent um, with her performance, and not necessarily based on any gender or sexual discrimination. Um, but also interesting is the fact that um, that same juror was not entirely pleased with of Perkins, and actually was said that he thinks that they should be punished somehow um that they he used the phrase it seems like they still think it's the wild, wild west. And you know, too often that is a phrase used in in the tech community. Um and so that it's it's interesting that you know he would use that phrase. In addition, um even though uh, Ellen Powell lost and you know there still remains the possibility she could appeal, although I don't know if she will, um even given that, um There are still people who believe that this still is a victory for women in in tech um, because it shines such a bright spotlight on what is going on in in this area. Um, I mean, the fact that in 2015, um, the number of men, women who hold um, partner positions in Silicon Valley VC firms is 4%. Um, it you know it says something. You know the fact that you hear these stories that have come out um, from Uber, and now we have lawsuits being filed, a class action lawsuit, which is much more significant, filed against Twitter. We um, have another lawsuit being filed uh, against Facebook by the same law firm that handled Ellen Powell's case. Um, you know, this is an, an area that is getting a lot of attention. And um, so we'll be following that. We, we we're going to try to now that the trial's over. We may try to get some people who have been you know, been following this issue closely and see if we, they have time to now talk about it. Um, but it's an important, but it's an important issue. Um, another development that is worth noting is that the urban some debate and there's been the aggressive efforts by the American Federation for the Blind to try to get websites to do take measures to make themselves more accessible for the visually impaired. Um, and what does that mean? What that means is actually using um, text descriptions for pictures, for example. So when you load a picture, an image, having some textual description for it. And the, the latest involves a lawsuit against the website script, which you know kind of dubs itself as the Netflix for books. And... Scribd challenged the lawsuit because it was under the the Americans for Disabilities Act, um, which was passed during the Bush, you know, the very first Bush administration, and basically it, they said that refers to physical the physical world. It doesn't refer to the offline world. And in um, an important decision in which you know has it created some debate, uh, a court a Vermont federal court said no actually that it does apply to websites and explaining that the internet is central to every aspect of the economic and social mainstream of American life. Um, And in such a society, excluding businesses that sell services through the internet from the EDA would run afoul of the purpose of the Act and would severely frustrate Congress's intent that individuals with disabilities fully enjoy the goods, services, privileges and advantages available indiscriminately to other members of the general public. so That will be an ongoing debate and there are some circuits that do say um, quite the opposite and so ultimately that that could be something that does get sent up to the Supreme Court for consideration. Um, We shall see how that develops. Another development is um, President Obama has issued a new executive order uh, in response to some of the recent attacks on um, GitHub, for example, has been been barraged by um, DDoS attacks, and large presumed presumably coming from the Chinese government, um, and because of its support of uh, websites that are trying to undermine um, China's um, firewall and censorship censorship regime. And so, in the new executive order. Um, he has empowered the Treasury Secretary to use financial sanctions against foreign actors who threaten critical infrastructure, launch de- denial-of-service attacks, or seek to steal trade secrets or financial data. Um, he's called it a, um, a state of emergency and it's enabled him to, which triggers the ability of the, the Treasury Department to issue sanctions. Um, I think that's how the, uh, some of the sanctions for, for example, going to Cuba. Um, or some other countries that uh, the list keeps getting smaller of the countries we were not allowed to go to are also under some declaration of emergency. So that we'll see how that plays out and what the sanctions actually will be. That is, that does remain undefined at the moment. Um, another development actually we're um, going on right now as we speak is GoDaddy's IPO. Um, they've had a pretty strong opening. They were up thirty three percent before we went on the year. And, uh, although there are a number of critics of GoDaddy and one is, you know, why are we putting all this money into it? Because they're not particularly profitable. Um, so we have an our If you go to our blog, which by the way, um, is profiles of, um, Professor Renzor and as well as the book. Um, and we have also information on news updates. If you go to cyberlawradio.wordpress and, uh, we have inf- more information about all these issues, including the GoDaddy IPO, um, the and Perkins trial, and the um, state of emergency and um, sanctions for um, cyber attacks. So um, one other issue that has come up was the uh, Ninth Circuit actually affirmed the um, judgment in the case of the actress um, Huang Against um, IMDb, Internet Movie Database. And um, basically, what had happened is the Internet Movie Database took information it had gathered um, from the billing function and also um, it had determined that um, one of its users what her real age was and actually corrected her profile to reflect her real age. Well, and anyone's familiar with Hollywood. Um, get an actress who actually states her real age. One is rare, and but she felt that since she looked much younger than she was, and was being cast for much younger roles, that actually this hurt her uh, ability to get jobs. And she sued, and as a privacy violation. Um, but ultimately, the, the terms and conditions were found to have um, was not to be a violation of terms and conditions, and so she lost at trial. And just this last week, the uh, Ninth Circuit affirmed that judgment. And so, um, that brings a close to that case. So, um, that, that's kind of the, the latest developments of what is going on in cyberspace. And, um, you know, obviously we hope to have more on the Kleiner Perkins trial as we go forward and, um, a little bit more also on this, the, the cyber attacks. I'd like to remind you, you know, we've had Stan Stall on in the past talking about some of the cyber attacks and that the, um, ISSA LA, which he heads will be having their, um, annual um, cybersecurity summit um, that's coming up in the beginning of June. So I encourage you to check that out um, as well. Um, I do have one announcement, actually, and that is, um, for those of you who are familiar with John Dean, he's a former White House counsel under President Nixon. And he actually has a column on fine law. And starting in tomorrow, um, he will be publishing a column um, talking about cyber harassment where he interviews me on that topic. So I encourage you, we will post that out on our Twitter feed, Cyber Law Radio, and I encourage you to take a look at that. Um, it was a pleasure to work with Mr. Dean on that, and uh, we hope to have him on our show to talk about his latest book, The Nixon Defense, um, which will be out in paperback in June. So uh, we will have that pretty soon. So um, as we wrap up on this April Fool's attention, um, one of the best um, April Fool's pranksters is Richard Branson. And I really liked his last year's um, Echo Fools where he um, mentioned, he, he, engaged, he showed the design and prototype of a glass-bottom plane. It actually looked kind of cool. and made you kind of wonder, "Wow, that would be interesting. Uh, of course, probably terrifying for those who are afraid of flying. Well, today he uh, he's announced that Virgin is going to start service from San Francisco to Branson, Missouri, um, <laughs> and direct flights there. And uh, of course, um, this, uh, we have a link to an article that Uh, highlights their efforts at April Fools over the years. So I'm you to check it out. So have a happy and safe April Fools. Join us next week here on and Business Report. Uh, It was a pleasure having you um, and we'll be back next week. Thanks again Brasco for helping us out and everyone have a safe week. Courts adjourned we will be back here next week. See you then.